The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. The word of God speaks to us like this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Thanks. Hey, guys. Good morning. Leslie, that was very kind. I'm exceedingly embarrassed, but you're very sweet. Uh, it's, it's great to celebrate my 65th birthday with you guys. <laughs> I'm at least 65 in pastor years. We age like dogs. Uh, <laughs> it, it's fun to be home. I spent last week with some of the pastors from all five of our congregations out of town, just taking a week to pray for our church and to seek the heart of God for the next season in the life of our church and to pray for each other, to love on each other. And uh, God met us. It was a really rich time. So uh, I'm thankful to be home, thankful to be with you guys, thankful for the community that God's building here, and thankful that by God's grace and providence, I get to talk about this text. Uh, This is a text that's really near and dear to me. This is a part of the Bible that reflects the heart of God to show us that the church is not just an institution. It is institutional in different dynamics, but it's not just an institution. The church is an incarnational reality. The church is the body of Christ in the earth. And God's vision for the church is so big, it's so deep, that this text invites us to not just see our participation as something we do on Sunday mornings, but to see our participation in the church even with all of her flaws and all of her failings and all the places where she hasn't yet arrived, but to see our participation in the church as a part of the gift of salvation that God has given us in Jesus, that we have been through the Holy Spirit engrafted into the body of Christ. 
and that every single member of the body has a place in the body. And that all the members of the body, though different and diverse with different functions and backgrounds and strengths and weaknesses, together create a functioning reflection of the hands and feet and heart and voice of Jesus to the world. So that's a really big deal. So I want to pray for you and ask you to pray for me and let's dive into God's word. Father, I thank you so much that uh, we stand here together roughly 2,000 years after these words were written. And for 2,000 years, these words about your church and your heart and the gift that we've been given in Jesus to not just be reconciled to the Father, but to be given to one another has penetrated cultures all over the globe. It's penetrated honor-shame cultures. It's penetrated capitalist cultures. It's penetrated communist cultures. It's moved in places of abject poverty. It's moved in cities of wealth. It's moved in all the different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds of this world. And today, 2,000 years later, we get to stand in the flow of what you've been doing since the beginning, building yourself a church for your glory. And so I pray today that you would, uh, that you would adjust us, like that you would take parts of your body that are drifting or disconnected or at odds with each other, joints that are out of whack, and would you just adjust and reconnect and strengthen the sinew and fill us again with your spirit and help us. Help us, Lord. Help us to not just come up with good ideas for Oklahoma City, but help us to be an embodied reality in this town that points to Christ. And we love you and we trust you. And uh, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would feed us. And we ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, so I mentioned it in the prayer that I just prayed, but it's fascinating to me that the heart of God for the church has the ability to step into literally any culture that's ever existed and simultaneously in that culture stand as a prophetic witness against the things in that culture that are infused with human wickedness and ignorance and at the same time be able to affirm the things in that culture that have a measure of beauty and goodness because of the image of God. And what's interesting about our cultural moment is that we are in this really weird time where it feels a little bit like liberalism in the West is either transitioning or if you're a bit more cynical in its death throes. What I mean by that is the basic tenets of liberalism that have evolved over the years kind of are connected to the highest good of human beings being individual freedom and autonomy. And we live in this really weird moment where that has iterated and iterated and iterated and iterated to such a degree that as one pastor put it recently, like we kind of don't even know what the common good is anymore. And if freedom is ultimately about me doing whatever I want to do and you doing whatever you want to do, then it becomes really difficult to even arbitrate between those versions of the good life when we have something like 330, different, 330 uh, million different versions of the good life in individual Americans. 
And in the midst of that, in the midst of that expressive individualism that kind of sees autonomy as our highest good, we also have this really weird thing going on, and it's called by different names and different camps, but we also have this sort of like collectivism that's going on in America that simultaneously wants to reduce people to groups, to groups, to just do groupthink and do identity politics and to kind of forget about what it means to be an individual and is there merit in merit and what does it look like to not be defined by the collective group but to actually be an individual human being. And what I love about our text today is it does what the Bible always does. It steps into the fray of human culture and it brings clarity and it brings beauty and it brings wisdom because God's vision for the church and God's vision for humanity is not the kind of expressive individualism that doesn't find commonality or a common good. Nor is God's vision for humanity and the church a collective groupthink where we lose what it means to be individual human beings, but God's vision for the church is this redemptive heart that's actually going to connect us without devouring us. God's vision for you and for me is that we could be a part of something that might be the only community in your life that actually has a compelling vision for the common good that you might be a part of something that's bigger than you, but it's not bigger than you in the kind of way that reduces you to be a cog in the machine that just gobbles you up. It's bigger than you, and at the same time, it values you, and it sees you, and it invites you into something that's actually good for you. Today, we're talking about the body of Christ, and the big idea today is that the body of Christ is one and has many members. It's one, there's unity, there's communion, there's fellowship, but it's not nameless and faceless. It's the kind of fellowship that acknowledges and delights in the diversity of individuals that reflects the beauty of God. So take your Bible, come with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. One of the things that God does in the mystery and wonder of salvation is he doesn't just, he doesn't just reconcile us to the Father through the finished work of Jesus, but he takes people who have no common ground whatsoever. In Roman society, Jews and Greeks and slaves and free people had no fellowship whatsoever. They didn't relate to each other. They didn't eat together. They didn't love each other. They didn't value each other. And the Spirit of God does this amazing thing through the preaching of the gospel where he takes dead hearts, he makes them come alive, and then he incorporates these diverse people with different backgrounds and different experiences and different cultures into one body without gobbling up the fact that they're still individuals. And what I love about this is that this is, this is one of the most prophetically important things we could possibly find as Americans in our cultural moment as we fight for community. This is an invitation to not have a deflated self or an inflated self, but to have a self that finds its identity and meaning in Jesus. 
to not be inflated and to not be deflated, but to have a self, to know who you are, to receive the fullness of your personage in Jesus and to relate to one another as a self that comes into contact with other image bearers of God that have been saved by the grace of God and treats them with value, dignity, and respect. So Paul starts by addressing the deflated self. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Here's what Paul is saying. Uh, It's so easy in insecurity and in our brokenness to have a deflated sense of self and to have the hands look at the eye and say, well, I, I don't bring the beautiful gift of sight, therefore I don't have meaning in the body. Or for the ear to look at the hand and say, because I don't have strength to grab and to hold, I'm not a part of the body. And what Paul says here is that what we need to find our true self, to not be deflated and insecure, is a Godward vision that sees God as the one that saves and arranges and calls and plants and places. God is the one that saves you. He's the one that grafts you in. He's the one that gifts you. He's the one that defines you. And listen, he's the one that's been telling the story of your life even when you were in your mother's womb. He's the one that sovereignly, sovereignly orchestrated your strengths, your talents, your capacities. And listen, he's also the one that just as sovereignly and just as beautifully orchestrated your weaknesses, and your limitations, and the places where you're going to need help, and the places where you're going to struggle. And what this means is that to receive from God, to receive from God a Godward view of who we are means that we don't have to constantly be fragile, and we don't have to ask other human beings to hold up the mirror for us. When Christian communities become communities of fragility— where we're all walking on eggshells and we're all asking each other to define us and tell us who we are, it makes it really difficult to have any sort of depth of relationship. Like, all I need from you is for you to define me and name me. Uh, my wife and I rewatched Jerry Maguire. That's like the one rom-com that I could be uh, convinced and coerced into watching. And uh, that one line, like, which is the famous line of the movie, you complete me. Like, what a ridiculous thing for a human being to ever say to another human being. I know, it's so, it's so romantic, but it's so stupid. It's such a crushing weight to put on the back of any human being. And yet, in Christian community, what can happen is we can have such a deflated sense of self that we need other people to constantly tell us who we are, constantly hold up the mirror, give me a sense of self. And what Paul is saying is, hey, man, actually, when you see God rightly, you're going to see yourself rightly. When you get a glimpse of who God is and how he arranges and he saves and he orchestrates and he's sovereignly working in your life, it means you don't have to compare, you don't have to compete, and you don't have to ask everybody in your community group to vote on who you are. 
You can be a full self and you can navigate relationship with tenderness and love because you're not desperate, grasping, and needy. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have needs. We do have needs, but it means that we're not defined by whether or not other people meet our expectations in any given moment. And listen, unmet expectations kill relationships, do they not? I could tell you so many stories of the first two years of marriage. Like, unmet expectations kill relationships. And what Paul wants to do out of the gate as he talks about the church as the body of Christ is to reset expectation that the only person that can tell you who you are and give you a self is your creator and your redeemer. And that means you can let other people off the hook and you can treat them like people. You don't have to possess them. You don't have to control them. And you don't have to demand that they perform for you. You can be disappointed and still love people. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing if we could like figure out as a church how to be disappointed by each other and still love each other? Like that might be the greatest witness to Oklahoma City that we could possibly give this town. Right? That would be better than any evangelistic crusade at the Civic Center if we could just figure out how do we like get our feelings hurt and forgive and stay in relationship. That would be amazing. Well, we can't do that if we have a deflated self. And then he addresses the inflated self because that's just as dysfunctional. Look at verse 21. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, listen to this, this is so beautiful. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Here's what he's saying. Um, It would be ridiculous. It would be ridiculous for your quadriceps to look at your internal organs to say to your kidney, I don't need you because you're weak and you're not strong. (laughs) Or for your bicep to say to your liver, I don't need you. That would be ridiculous. What Paul is saying is just as your internal organs might be more fragile, they might be more delicate, they require the covering of skin and the protection of bones, you can't live a life without them, and it would be insane for one part of the body on the outside to say to a part of the body on the inside, I don't need you because you're weak. And then he references sex organs. He says that there are parts of our body, there are parts of our body that require greater modesty doesn't mean that they're not important. In fact, we bestow on those parts of our body a kind of honor because we cover them up. And what he is saying in these verses is that God honors the parts that seem to lack honor. And God sees and God honors the parts of the body that seem to be weak and more private than other parts of the body. What happens in the church when we idolize one gift or one role or one calling or one service or one kind of personality type is we create a monster that reduces the body to like one crawling hand or one throbbing eyeball. And what he's saying is the wisdom and beauty of God is that we need all the parts of the body not elevating themselves above other parts of the body or pretending like they don't have the value of other parts of the body. He needs us to relate to one another in honor and in love. 
And this can happen in the church in lots of different ways. We can become a teaching community with no prophetic heat. And when that happens, we, can, we become dry and we become heady and we lose our heart and our soul. Churches can become prophetic communities with no teaching. When that happens, everything is experience and there's a lot of heat, but there's not a lot of light. We can become evangelistic communities with no discipleship. We're always winning the lost. We just don't do anything to teach them how to follow Jesus, right? We keep, we keep seeing people brought into the church and then they stay infants forever. Or we can, be, we can be really discipling deep formational communities that don't do evangelism and we become inbred and we die off and we become an endowed building with me and a few other senior citizens waiting to die, right? Like there's so many ways that we get this wrong. We can be a healing community with no theology for suffering. We can be a suffering community with no grid for healing. And what Paul is saying that's so important is that the center of the church is not one particular gift. It's not one particular ministry. It's not one particular issue. The center of the church is Jesus. He's the head. He's the one that arranges the parts of the body. And all the parts of the body have their place and are needed. So let let me ask you a few questions to try to drive the point home. Which is more important in our church? The ministry of Corey Hall, who is an incredible leader and mobilizer for mission, who's constantly helping community groups to do pushback darkness grants and connecting with the poor and the hurting in our city and mobilizing folks to serve. Which is more important, Corey Hall doing that work or uh, our team of amazing bus drivers with CDLs that pick up members of our church from City Rescue Mission? Which is more important, the, the team that preaches on a Sunday morning, me and Kenser and Kevin Cawley, or the people that are committed to show up every single week early before service and get on their face and cry out that God would empower the preaching of his word with power? What's more important, um, Phil leading worship on a Sunday morning or the tech team that's up in the booth making sure that you guys can actually hear and follow along with our liturgy? What's more important, the person that prays for the sick and sees some miracles, or the intercessor that's been praying for 10 years in the middle of the night that God would pour out his power on his church again? Like, what's more important, um, a really powerful, gifted, upfront leader like Corey Ferencamp, who's our executive pastor, or a member of a C group in the plaza that just notices that a friend in their group is struggling with depression and invites them over for coffee and asks them questions about their soul. What's more important, um, Sujith leading out and planning a church in India or the people in our church with the gift of giving that have been funding it, knowing that it's gonna take probably 10 years for that church to be self-sustaining. The the point asking you those questions is that every one of those questions are really stupid. (laughs) They're dumb questions. Those questions are all category mistakes. And what happens when we elevate one gift or we get deflated in what we're called to do or inflated in what we're called to do, we miss the wonder that Jesus Christ is the center of the church, he's the head, and God arranges the parts of the body where he sees fit so that we can be functional. We are to reflect his ministry and his mission in all sorts of ways. Now, look what Paul says in verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is amazing. 
This is Paul saying that the body moves us away from extreme individualism. It's not rampant, take liberal political the, uh, theory to the extreme of the autonomous self. And, and it's not indistinct collectivism, but instead what he's saying is we're many parts, but a connective whole, and we need one another, and we're invited into the restoration of true communion with each other. In place of division, we're called into care, suffering, honor, and joy. So what does it look like when the body of Christ actually sees ourselves as the body? What does it look like? Well, Paul describes it in verse 25 and 26. Look what he says. That there may be no division in the body. No division. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's what he mentions. That there would be no division. Like if we really see ourselves as the body of Christ connected and interdependent for the glory of God, then that means that we're going to go to great lengths to forgive, to be reconciled, to keep short accounts, to extend each other grace, to know that when we create stories and make meaning of an encounter with another human being, that at best is always partial knowledge because we're not God. We don't know other people's hearts. To actually like not have unrealistic expectations, but to step into a community group knowing that it's full of sinful people and you just made it more sinful by your presence, right? To fight against the kind of division that thinks that we have the right to impute motives on other people, to actually like navigate our relationships in humility and in love where we fight to maintain the bond of peace and unity that Jesus has already purchased. It's really interesting, guys. Like, I don't remember who said this. This is not my thought, but years ago, I heard a pastor talking about the three categories that received the strongest rebuke in the New Testament. There's three categories that are the most destructive that get the strongest rebukes from the apostolic writers. Um, the first category is false teaching. The second category is unrepentant sexual immorality. And the third category is division. Division. Because we can't actually glorify God and follow Jesus on mission if we're devouring each other. If we're called to take ground and to push back darkness and we're constantly at odds, constantly nurturing grudges and offenses, it's impossible for us to function as the body. And what can start to happen is division and divisiveness in the church can be sort of like inflammation that affects the entirety of the body, that keeps the body from growing and being strong and recovering and deepening. He also says that we're not just to avoid division, but I love this, that the members are to have the same care for one another, care for one another. Um, this means that we're to actually be people that suffer with those that suffer, to love each other. Now, if this is going to be me trying to be really loving and gracious and stepping on toes without doing it in Josh Curry as a 30-year-old man would have done it, so, so bear with me. 
But you can't care for one another and you can't bear with one another in suffering if the extent of your relationship is like prom king, prom queen, Sunday morning, you kinda know 150 people, but you don't really know deeply anybody. Because the amount of suffering in this room could frankly, apart from the grace of God, sink a battleship. And we can show up on a Sunday morning and we see everybody and we see everybody in some, in some ways on their best day when everything's put together. But like, there's a lot of people that fell apart in this room last night. And there's a lot of people that are carrying really hard stuff and there's a lot of people that will fall apart tomorrow. So to be the body of Christ with criers, not being a crowd, but to fighting for the kind of connectivity and the kind of depth of relationship where we can be with each other in seasons of suffering. This is why we do community groups as a church. It's not like community groups are the silver bullet or some magic thing. It's not like, you know, if you're not a part of a community group, you can't be saved by Jesus. I'm not saying anything like that. There's probably 50 different ways to try to facilitate in local churches the depth of relationship needed to do this. We just try to do it through community groups because we believe that, we believe that you're not gonna be able to receive care or give care if all you do is show up on a Sunday morning and you don't know people here. He also says, this is amazing, that we're to honor one another. We're to honor one another. I love that. Like, what would it look like to have a culture of honor? That's different than flattery. Like, flattery is gross and manipulative. Honor is when you're able to name places where the people around you reflect the heart, character, and goodness of God. Where you're able to name places where you see the spirit of God working through your brothers and sisters. It's being able to name virtue that's being cultivated in your brothers and sisters. Like, I, I so want to build the kind of culture of honor where we don't just give empty compliments, but we know how to come alongside even things that are new and fragile, but that God's planted in the lives of our brothers and sisters, and to name those things and say, hey, man, here's what I've seen in your life in the last month. Like, I can tell you're really stepping out in boldness in trying to love and serve your kids and do discipleship, and I'm actually... I'm actually encouraged to try to engage my kids more intentionally as you do that. That's honoring one another. That's not just thinking good things, but thinking good things and then saying good things to each other, right? And then he does this. He ends with describing various roles, ministries, gifts, and callings. I don't have time to unpack all this. The point is that Paul is just describing tons of unity and tons of diversity. Look at verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles or all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to that is no, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Here's what he's saying. No two people are exactly the same. And God has arranged the parts of the body in unity, one body, but in diversity, all kinds of capacities, strengths, weaknesses, and gifts, ministries, responsibilities, and roles. And our job is to navigate being the body together in the kind of love and affection that adorns the gospel. Now, I wanna close with this. I, I wanna zoom out for just a second, and I wanna say three things. And I wanna say three things about being the body of Christ 
that I hope you take with you. Uh, it's not lost on me that when we talk about the church, some of you guys immediately find yourself wrestling with cynicism and disappointment. Some of you are frustrated in our church because of unmet expectations. Sometimes they were not fair expectations. Sometimes you really got let down by the pastors or by your group leaders. Both things happen all the time in our church. One of the things that makes me the most nervous is when I meet a new person at Frontline and uh, they've been here for like two weeks and they tell me, this is the greatest church I've ever been a part of. And I'm like, you are probably gonna leave in the next four weeks because we're not that great. And... If you, stick along, if you stick around long enough, you're gonna get mad, you're gonna get disappointed, probably at me. I'm gonna say something you don't like, somebody in your group is gonna do something dumb, and you're gonna have ample opportunity to get your feelings hurt. So in the midst of all that reality that the church on this side of glory is always imperfect, always in need of reform, always failing, and always a people of grace, not, perfer- not perfection yet, Uh, Let me just give you three things to think about with the church. This metaphor that we're the body of Christ tells us three things. One, it tells us how much Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church. And what's interesting is that Paul, who writes about the church being the body of Christ more than any other New Testament author, he actually received the beginnings of this revelation that the church is the body of Christ the day that he was converted, and he received it in a really painful way. Paul was then called Saul, and he was persecuting Christians. He was throwing Christians in jail. He was breaking up families. He was a party to executions. And Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, and he says this to him. It's something that stuck with Paul for the rest of his life. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So just stop here for a second. Like, whatever your thoughts are about the church, whatever your disappointments are in the church, whatever your read on church history is, however you think the church might get it wrong and fall short, I just want you to acknowledge that for just a moment, the greater reality than all those things, which might even be true, the greater reality than all those things is that Jesus Christ loves his church. That's not cold, detached, caring. That's him describing the church as his body. That's him describing the church with nearness and intimacy and presence. And we are embodied human beings. We can't relate to each other without relating to each other's bodies. That's why I loathed with every part of my being the weeks that we didn't gather and we did online church. You can't do online church. We're a people of presence. We need each other's presence. We need to look into each other's eyes. We need to be with each other. We need to be able to shake hands and hug and touch the bread and touch the wine. When we see that the church is the body of Christ, what we see is that Jesus cares for his people, loves his people like you would care for your body when it has needs. Let alone the fact that other metaphors affirm the same thing, that the church is his bride. Like, I've been married for almost 25 years. If you're like, hey, I wanna have a relationship with you but not your wife, that's a, that's a non-starter for me. It's a non-starter. You can't hate my wife and be a close friend with me. That doesn't mean I'm going to reject you. We, we can work stuff out. We can talk. We can do everything possible to come to reconciliation. But like, 
You can't despise my wife and want to be close with me. Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. Number two, our participation is incredibly important. I'm, I'm trying to like understate this. I wanted to come off the top rope with a lot of hyperbole on this, but I'm going to try to be subtle. Like to say it as subtly as possible, you participating in the local church, and it doesn't have to be this one, but you participating in the local church is incredibly important. The imagery of the body requires the working of the parts, but the life of the parts requires connection to the body. You can't sever a body part and expect it to thrive and flourish. There, there is no such thing as New Testament, me and Jesus, Christianity. You will not find it on a single page of the Bible. You need the people of God to keep repenting, to keep growing, to keep maturing. <laughs> years, ago, uh, years ago, I got done with a boxing practice and I looked so gross. I had on like a white tank top. I still had wraps on my hands. I had blood on my shirt. I looked so gross. And I was pulling into my driveway and my wife, who is epically bad at knife work, she's constantly cutting herself. And I love sharp knives. Like I'm obsessed with keeping knives sharp. And I, I know that like the old adage is, is like, you're gonna cut yourself with dull knives more frequently. That's not true for my wife. If I sharpen my knives, she will cut herself within 24 hours. And uh, when I was at boxing practice, she was chopping garlic and she literally cut the entire tip of her finger off. So I just want you to think of this scene. Like this is not, this is not a good missionary moment for me and my neighbors. I pull up, I'm in boxing gear. I smell like death. I have blood on my shirt. I look like a thug from one of the Rocky movies. And my wife comes out. She's bleeding everywhere with her hands above her head. Like cascade of blood. This looks like an incident that requires police attention. And so I like, I check her finger. The tip of her finger's gone. We called a buddy of ours who's a surgeon. She was like, hey, um, bring her to me. I'll take care of it. I'm not thinking. I just take Nancy, rush her there, wrap her finger, get her to the surgeon. And the surgeon's like, hey, dummy, where's the tip of her finger? <laughs> so I had to drive back to my house, <laughs> collect the tip of my wife's finger, bring it back, and she was able to reattach it. Now, I've just told you that story because like, this metaphor should drive home that if you think you're going to be better off, that you're going to thrive spiritually, that you're going to pull eject on a local church and come back in a year and do an assessment of your health and vitality and be better off, you're crazy. Nancy's body, her whole body was hurt and damaged because of that cut. But that tip of the finger would have decayed and gone away if it didn't get reattached to the body. We need each other. We need each other. And that's not a commercial for this church. If you're not called to this church, dude, we'll help you find a church that loves Jesus in our city that you might fit in. So number one, Jesus loves his church. Number two, our participation is incredibly important. And then the last thing I'll say, the spirit-filled church is called to continue the ministry of Jesus in the world. Now, Paul's not emphasizing this in 1 Corinthians 12. He's emphasizing body ministry inside the church. But elsewhere, like in Ephesians, he emphasizes that as the body of Christ, we're the hands, feet, and presence of Jesus for the world. And what's crazy is that in Acts chapter 1, we have these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. 
until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and fills those early believers, empowers them to be the church. The Spirit-filled church becomes the very presence of Jesus in the world. And what's wild is that Jesus' earthly ministry only covered about 6,500 square miles. That, that's tiny. The state of Oklahoma is just under 70,000 square, square miles. Jesus' earthly ministry in three years was just like 6,500 square miles in Judea. But the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is to bring the presence of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the hands and feet of Jesus to the world in localities, in towns, in villages, and all over the place. So, I wanna take a second, I wanna pray, and uh, invite you to respond however you need to respond. And maybe you find yourself just really reacting, like, hey man, you don't know my story, you don't know how bad the church has disappointed me, you don't know how much anger I'm carrying. If that's where you're at today, man, like, being able to name that is a really important step and being able to resolve that. Don't, don't just stay there. Don't just nurture that. There's work to do there. And you don't have to do that work by yourself. There's other people that have a similar story and a similar history. So if, if that's you today, there's work there. If the work you need to do is just naming for the first time that you've been shaped more by expressive individualism, by the illusion of autonomy than you have by the Bible, there's work to do there. Right? If you are just still sort of questioning, like, I don't even know how I fit into the body, there's work to do there. So wherever you're at today, let's just take a minute and be honest with God and respond to his word with prayer together. Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, I pray across this room that you would give us the gift of an increased love and an increased sobriety about the church. Would you give us the ability to both love the church and to know that the church is a sinful group of people and on this side of glory, she will always fall short. She'll always do dumb things. And would you help us to be a part of the solution as we relate to each other in honor, in unity, in bearing with each other, not a part of the problem that tears apart your church. And if there's any places in the room today where we need badly to apologize or to repent or to work towards reconciliation, would you just help us to be a people that expect that to be the tone and tenor of the Christian life. We should expect that relationships are going to fray and fracture and we have to do work. So Lord, would you breathe on our church again? Would you be glorified in the church again? Would you do everything you want to do among us? And as we come to this meal, would you, uh, would you feed us and sustain us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.